Welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology. My name is Dr. Michael Johnston. Today I have Dr. Ashley Mears on the show to discuss her book, Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit, which is published by Princeton University Press, and it's actually just getting ready to launch later on this month. So, Dr. Mears, how did you come about this this wonderful book, Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit? Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for, thanks for reading it and engaging with it, especially at, at this time of the, the pandemic and COVID. But um, I think that it does have some insights for thinking about economic inequality and social inequality. So that is the starting point of how the project started, in fact. Um, it was around 2010, um, and the economic recovery from the Great Recession was underway, but um, the gains from financial recovery were pretty uneven. It was becoming clear that even as people were climbing out of this massive wave of unemployment, um, a lot of a lot of gains had gone to people who were already at the top of the class hierarchy. And there were some reports that were coming out around 2009, 2010 of people who had huge um, like bonuses and finance or just huge disposable sums of money. And they were squandering for, you know, no better word, like, you know, the art market prices were ballooning. Uh, there were reports of like super yachts. Um, and then there were some reports of um, like squandering on champagne in these high-end bottle service clubs. And I had gone to grad school in New York, so I was familiar with the bottle service scene um, and its connections to fashion, because my first book was on fashion modeling. And it just was outrageous to me, some of the prices that I saw, you know, just in some quick uh, news reports uh, and in the press. And so um, I became really interested in, in what the bottle service economy could tell us about economic inequality. And then it ended up being a project also very much about gender inequality too. And so my first book, Pricing Beauty, came out in 2011. And uh, by then I was I was already pretty well connecting back with um, these party promoters that, that work in these high-end bottle service nightclubs around the world. And so that began my second book project. A big focus of this VIP is the uh, is the relationships that uh, uh, that occur in um, in this field, and it's uh, it's it's both about the uh, models and about the um, about the promoters uh, who are recruiting uh, these girls. So, so the way that you frame it is is with this concept of bodily capital, uh, what is what is bodily capital uh, in terms of this negotiation that continues to sway back and forth between the model and then the promoters? Yeah. Um, so something that's been a focus of my research for a while is this idea that um, the body acts as a resource or, or has a kind of value um, in the in the way that um, particularly for women uh, in the way that they look so it's a kind of embodied cultural capital in the words of Pierre Bourdieu but um, in the fashion modeling industry that's very is very clear that you know in the modeling market models have this bodily capital you know like an athlete um, and they sell it on the market before price in the VIP nightlife economy models have this incredibly valuable bodily capital that the models that are or look like fashion models are almost priceless in this industry. Um, Nightclubs spend an exorbitant amount of time and money and effort to try to get 
women who look like fashion models who have that kind of valued bodily capital into their spaces. Um, and that's because women who who have that kind of bodily capital attract men with economic capital. They attract men with money. And so a nightclub will very strategically say if there if there's like, you know, um, if one if a nightclub is like one big room, like a rectangle, the club will stack uh, tables full of fashion models in, in, you know, in all of the four corners to give anybody the impression from wherever they look out that they're surrounded by women who are very tall, very thin, very pretty, very young, predominantly but not exclusively white. And these are the kind of women that have this rare beauty that's been uh, sanctified by the fashion modeling industry. So they kind of they carry the status of a, of a high status, trendy industry literally in their bodies. And to get those models in those four corners of the room, the nightclub will hire um, a broker who who's called the party promoter on a contract basis. And every night, a party promoter's job, if they want to get paid, is to bring as many of these young women to the club that they can and then keep them there at their tables. And then they reap, a, um, they, they get a paycheck for that anywhere, uh, starting at the low end, $200 for someone who's relatively new on up to $1,000 a night a party promoter can get for bringing models to a nightclub. Um, and so the, a large part of the book is, is about that that process uh, that the promoter goes through to identify, to recruit, and to mobilize bodily capital, um, which I actually, in the book, I call it girl capital. Um, because, you know, even though the place is full of women, um, there are actually no women in this space, according to the terminology, they're all girls. And girl is a, a very specific kind of social category that um, by virtue of stepping foot in the place, uh, a woman becomes a, a girl. And that's a, a, a type of very valuable uh, young woman that is not seen as like fully, um, fully socially competent or like economically uh, independent or fully mature uh, and definitely not a very serious kind of person. And so, you know, I started this field work. I was like 30. Really, I did it systematically between 30 and 31. Um, and so at 30, 31 and 32. So at 31 and 32, I, I was going into these clubs and I was I was a girl. I would tell people my age and they would still refer to me as a girl. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of symbolism with com that comes with that that language, which uh, has has its uh, full all of its own area to sort of uh, understand and to see the dynamics of the conversations that that would be had when referring to a. I think a woman as a, as a girl. Yeah, absolutely. And it, you know, it's really common now, like, um, you know, in fashion, all of the women are referred to as girls. Um, you know, the male fashion models are not referred to as boys to the same extent, although some somewhat, but it's more common to call, just call them men. Um, but all of the, all of the women that are models are called girls, you know, in lots of different parts of the social world, you know, women who, who are well over the age of 18 and, you know, fairly well established in their uh, pursuits and their careers are, are very commonly referred to as girl. It's a, uh, it's a kind of, it's a term that is sort of seeped into popular usage, but I don't think that many people are aware of the, the origins of the idea of the girl. It comes out of the 1800s um, out of working class England. A girl was a, a young woman um, who was not yet married 
and was kind of seen as frivolous. She was um, assumed to be mostly about, you know, frivolous pursuits like consumption um, and, uh, you know, wasn't wasn't really taken in full seriousness. Um, And this was a very kind of modern identity for for a young woman to do something other than in the home, you know, and take care of children and be aligned with the domestic sphere, this kind of new 19th century figure of, of the young girl um, or the you know young woman as a girl really gained steam around the world. Um, there's a nice book about it called The Modern Girl Around the World um, and the way that this kind of new social type of, of like liberated modern woman um, enters the imagination, but fundamentally she's seen as being unserious. And did you see any of those interactions in the uh, in the research that you were doing on uh, on VIP girls? Oh yeah. So so I mentioned you know I started this research when I was like 30, uh, 30 and was doing it until thirty two, and um, when I would tell people my age, they were like, <laughs> it was like they would fall out of the chair. You know, it was like unfathomable that like a thirty two year old girl would be in this kind of space because it's just assumed that that these are all like young fashion models. Um, when I told people that I was a professor, they would, they were really surprised and kind of shocked by that. Um, but yet, you know, they would be like, Oh, meet this girl over here. She's a professor. And you weren't the only one, uh, who also had a full-time job outside of being, uh, outside of doing your ethnography and, uh, being one of the VIP girls as a participant observer. Uh, could you talk about some of the other professions that, uh, the girls around you also had. Right. Yeah. So, um, so the, the kind of main, the ideal or like the main pool of, of young women that a promoter would pursue would be women that are, are fashion models, especially newcomers to the fashion modeling industry. And there's a couple of reasons for that. So fashion models tend not to make very much money. This was the main thing that I found from my first book that despite all of the glamour, because it's a winner take all, industry, you've got a handful of people that make a lot of money and very visibly so, but then a huge base pyramid of people who don't make very much money at all. So it's really unequal as a labor market, which means that there's a lot of models that are recruited from you know around the world and they're away from home in a place like New York, which is very expensive, uh, and they're not making very much money. And so fashion models, actually, a lot of them have an economic need in order to go out uh, with somebody else to pay for it. And so when the promoters bring the young women to the tables with them, they give them a a dinner beforehand. They get a a so-called free, free meal at upscale restaurants that are pretty expensive that, you know, that that an aspiring fashion model wouldn't be able to afford on her own. Um, And actually getting into this nightlife world is also something that um, is, is pretty valuable to a young fashion model because they're, they typically are not from New York, and so they don't have their own friend network. Um, so, so yeah, fashion models make a kind of a good pool of, uh, of recruits for the promoters, and so the promoters know where to look for fashion models, and they're very attuned to the fashion modeling industry. They're also interested in bringing students, so young women who are studying at places like NYU, my alma mater, or FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, uh, these are these are young women that are considered also good bets for a promoter to try to recruit because they probably don't have much money, would like to join the VIP party, um, and they have the right the right look because these these kinds of universities are known for having you know um, fashionable uh, uh, women. Um, but that's not 
the only groups that promoters welcome to their table. They will they will welcome anyone to their table if she has the right look, meaning that if she's tall and thin and you know meets or comes close to the very narrow standards of beauty defined by the fashion modeling industry. At promoters' tables, I've sat beside people who work in real estate. Uh, I've sat beside people that work in finance and accounting and retail. Um, one time, I even found a, um, a, a cluster of three three women who were um, working as doctors. They were starting out in the medical field, and they were doctors, but they like to go out with a promoter every now and then to blow off steam and have some drinks. And so, you know, there is a range of, of different types of um professional uh, young women that can be found at promoters tables, but the bulk of the promoters um, tables will be full filled with um, fashion models or, or young women that, that look like fashion models, you know, or, or students. And um, yeah, that by virtue of being there with a promoter in that space, you know, the, the professor or the finance woman or the doctors will just, They'll be called girls. They'll be seen as girls. They're kind of all lumped together as this type of frivolous young woman. And there's this ongoing exchange that uh, you make mention to. Uh, they are making extra cash by uh, by being a girl for the promoter and going in and entertaining at these nightclubs. Um, but then they are also giving something back, contributing to uh, the promoter, uh, by way of emotional labor and, and providing an experience leisure. Uh, you mentioned a, a four steps or a process. I don't know that it's uh, by default or if it's cyclical, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that with the four steps being recruitment, mobilization, control, and discipline and getting these girls to be, uh, to be part of the nightlife. Right. Yeah. So, um, in that analysis, I'm drawing from sociologies of labor, um, people like Michael Borovoy, who've raised this question, like, why is it that people consent to their own exploitation, um, especially in the labor market? Like, why do workers work hard um, if they're compelled to work for a wage? Like, why do they put in extra effort? Why don't they put in the very minimum that they would need? Um, and you can see that in lots of different kinds of industries. People will work for... Um, really low pay or no pay in the case of the fashion modeling industry, and they and they work really hard for like really bad conditions often. Um, you know, in the modeling industry, it's kind of clear that fashion models are willing to accept um, getting paid in trade, which is a gift of clothing, or they're willing to accept getting paid in nothing just for the chance to be in an image in a you know high status magazine or really any magazine. Um, and this is this is usually understood as you know for symbolic status or exposure. So it's understood as quote working for oneself um, for the hope, even though it's a slim possibility. But the you know the hope that they might land a big break and catch a big job and get exposed to the right people. So in, you know in some industries, especially culture industries, I think that it it it's can't it can be explained. But in the case of the VIP party. It's really striking. Like the promoters are making quite a lot of money on these arrangements. I, I mentioned between two hundred and thousand dollars a night. Some promoters were incredibly successful. They were making over two hundred thousand dollars a year. This is um, in cash, and the nightclubs are incredibly successful, or they they were, you know, like prior to the pandemic. They, um, you know, they they end up being uh, sometimes um, international 
uh, international chains. Some of the clubs, they, they have outputs or outposts, you know, uh, from Vegas to New York to Miami, to, you know, pop-ups in Saint-Tropez to Sydney, Australia, and so on. And so the people that run these nightclubs um, do very well. Uh, some of them have been launched into um, the elite, the economic elite themselves. They're millionaires. But the girls don't get paid. <laughs> so, I, you know, I was just, I was so struck during my time in the field work that the, this VIP nightlife world, I mean, it's run by men for men, but on girls. Um, and so how is it that the girls can have this incredibly valuable bodily capital and everybody thinks of it as a kind of capital, like the promoters, the club owners, even the, the wealthy guys who are going to nightclubs themselves, they, they see girls as valuable and, and they know that girls can help them, uh, help them signal status to forge ties with one another. Um, so, you know, this girl capital is generating all of these profits uh, for men, but she doesn't get paid. Um, and so, so I went back to some labor sociology and um, saw that the same kinds of processes that sociologists were finding in workplaces, you know, like in factory labor, actually had pretty interesting uh, relevance for the labor process here for, for a, a young woman to become a girl and to become girl capital. Uh, there's this process of recruitment that the, the promoters go through recruiting young women throughout the city to join their tables. Uh, there's a process of mobilization. So getting her to come out at night usually involves gift exchange, treating her with um, with rides to and from upscale restaurants where the bill is always paid, free champagne in the nightclubs, even free plane tickets to go join the VIP party in a place like Miami or free rides out to the Hamptons and all expenses, you know, in, in the Hamptons. So that's a process of mobilization is kind of enticing and, and mobilizing young women to come out. Um, there's a process, uh, um, then of, of trying to exert managerial control over the young women to get them to stay at the table, uh, over the course of say three hours while the promoter is working from midnight to 3am. And that's, that's a long time to be in the club. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, if, you know, when the last time you or your listeners have, you know, have done drunk <laughs> clubbing, but like. 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. is pretty tough, <laughs> I, yes. I will say. Yeah, um, and that's not just me. You know, someone in her 30s saying saying this is like objectively, people got really tired after after a couple hours of that. Um, but but promoters need the young women to stay at their table so that so that they can show to the management that they had a full table all night long and they got paid for it. Um, and then, uh, and then finally, there's a process of discipline where, you know, when a worker steps out of line, management has to discipline in some way. And that's a really interesting balancing act because all the while that the promoter is accumulating, recruiting, mobilizing, and then um, making money on girls as capital, girl capital, uh, it's supposed to not be experienced as work. From the young woman's perspective from her perspective she's going out and having fun with her friends and she's getting free dinner it's not like compensate it's not like compensation for her time right so there's all of these effort efforts that the promoter goes through and the club goes through to try to make it look like fun not work to make it look like leisure not labor and the managerial control and the discipline then you know it, usually this this is where um the relationship between the promoter and girl, if it's not strong, then uh, it'll feel uncomfortable to her. And she'll, you know, I, this is usually a breaking point in relationships. If a promoter has to 
discipline a girl and tell her like, no, you come back to the table and stay here until 3 a.m. because I'm getting paid for it. That usually that's the, that, that can be the point in the relationship where, where it's no longer fun and she can and often will leave. Yeah. And one of the um, pieces of discipline that really stood out to me is when one of the uh, promoters turned his back to a girl who uh, wasn't wearing what he expected her to at the club. Yeah. Yeah. So there, um, this is also, you know, um, there's this implicit dress code that uh, all of the women in these clubs, um, they, you know, not only do they have the kind of body that looks like fashion models, but they should also dress, you know, stylish and, um, and sexy and wear high heels, even if they're already five foot 10, the standard of high heels at the time was like four inches. So now imagine standing in, in four inch high heels from, you know, uh, 12 until 3am. Yeah, it's rough. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, indeed. So some promoters would keep a spare little black dress in their car or a spare pair of high heels in their car. And if, uh, if one of their girls showed up for dinner, they would make them go change or just tell them to go home. Um, and that they can't, that they can't have dinner with, you know, sorry, you can't have dinner with us tonight because you don't have the right look. Um, you know, because promoters, when they bring their girls into the club, um, the, the management and the, and the door people take notice. And so if, if the promoters, uh, if the young women that the promoter is with doesn't fit the look, you know, the expected standard, um, like fashion model beauty, then the promoter will take a financial hit. <laughs> like, yes. the pro- yeah. The, the, I mean, the promoter might actually lose money or worse, the promoter would lose some of his reputation and other clubs might not want to work with him. Other, other, um, other girls might not want to be around him. Um, and he might not get as many, um, you know, bookings or as many, contacts to or as many opportunities to um to work excellent and many of the promoters that uh that you uh, met in your field work were male but you also mentioned that there were some female promoters also did the female promoters uh, look any way different or act any way different than what the male promoters did and if so how yeah so the i mean for the most part it is it is a man's um it's a man's job. It's a man's world. Um, the, you know, not just for the fact that, you know, disproportionately it's, it's men. I interviewed 44 promoters. Only five of them were women. And I really had to work to find the women and I had to ask around. Whereas with, um, going out, going out once or twice, I would, I would just have like every night, you know, at least five new, uh, promoters. I, I would get their phone numbers because there's, it's so prevalent that promoters are out and, um, and, and they're men. And so, uh, so yeah, it was very easy to recruit and to meet men that do the job, but relatively difficult to find women that do the job and not a lot of women do it. And so, so it's a male job, um, in just sheer numbers, but it's also a man's job. Um, people would say because of the associations with the job that, um, it's, it's assumed heterosexuality uh, and heteronormativity is so ingrained in this world. It's, it's assumed that one strong means that a promoter uses to get girls to the table is flirtation. Um, so, you know, promoters will, will have all kinds of innuendo and flirtatious encounters with the young women that they're recruiting. This is also part of this mobilization effort. Promoters will also um, have sex with 
the girls that they're that they're trying to get them to come out. Um, so in this sense, promoters do look a lot like pimps uh, who are kind of notorious for having sex with uh, with women and then getting women to work for them. Um, and uh, so yeah, flirtation is pretty heavy. Um, it's also uh, there's a kind of uh, roughness that transpires between the clubs and the promoters. Where promoters. Uh, all of them say that it's actually um, a really like competitive business where you have to be you have to be really assertive and aggressive to both control um, girls at your table to keep other promoters from poaching girls away from your table, um, and also to interact with with the clubs and to to get paid. Um, and so, club management is is also uh, overwhelmingly men. All the clubs are run by men for the most part. So yeah, within this very masculine world and, and very heteronormative world, I, I found these five women and I went out with them and I interviewed them and uh, and they do operate very differently. So they know that they lack the flirtation um, aspect. Um, and for them, uh, the way that they're able to mobilize girls out is through friendship. And so they spend a lot of time really trying to build genuine friendships uh, with the girls that then the girls reciprocate by coming out and, and supporting that promoter. And support is the word that everybody uses. So, yeah, that's um, in some ways it's just less it's less vulgar, if I can say it that way, the way that the uh, women promoters operate because they're not exploiting the, the sex um, and they're not exploiting flirtation. Um and and yet it's a pretty challenging job, I think, for uh, for men and for women, but especially for women, because they um, they just had a much harder time controlling the girls, getting holding the girls interest at their club and also dealing with, um, you know, these rather competitive and aggressive um, competitor promoters and also club management. So when I when I first started reading this and when I approached the, the book, I was first quite disgusted uh, that um, men as promoters would uh, exploit the female body for uh, that was in many cases was quite vulnerable. But you mentioned that the men were marginal and the girls were beautiful. You mentioned that the promoters and models both knew they were being used by the other and that they were okay with it as long as they didn't abuse it. This is important to me because it shows how menial both positions are. Yeah. Could you talk more about that? Yeah, so I also was pretty disgusted when I started the project. I thought that the promoters would be like the villains in this story. And over time, I really started to um, empathize with them because I could I can see that they are also in a pretty dominated position economically relative to the clients and the club owners. Um, and, and they're at the same time really striving and dreaming really big that they think that they can be as rich as all of these people that they're working for and it never quite works out for them. I mean, okay, $200,000 a year cash is not, that's not like a, a story of failure. And yet it is, it is part of the problem of extreme economic inequality that that kind of success always seems uh, inadequate. You know, when, when you're surrounded by people that you assume are making millions. So yeah, yeah. In that sense, I, I kind of felt that these promoters are these kind of perpetual dreamers. But from their point of view, they don't see the way that they're treating women. I don't believe that all of them see the way that they're treating women as exploitative. That from, 
from many of their from many of them their from their perspective, uh, I believe that they think that it is mutual mutually beneficial and that it's a, a mutual exchange. Um, and you know, for, that's not true for all of them. I think that I think that some of them are much more exploitative than others. Um, but in some ways, I, I think that, that that might be a limit in the kinds of conceptual frameworks that we as sociologists have. That we assume that if something's exploitative, it must it must be unbearable or intolerable or somehow unjust and and experienced by people as unjust. And it can be, uh, but it need not be. So I think a lot of the girls, even they in interviews, they were they knew that promoters made money off of them. They usually didn't know how much. And they were surprised to learn that promoters could make so much money. Um, but that didn't, you know, they weren't, uh, they didn't, they, they didn't like awaken in them, you know, some sense that, that, it, that it's unjust. That from their point of view, for the girls, they also benefited a lot from their ties with promoters who introduced them to networks of friends, you know, opened up this world of elite entertainment and leisure that they otherwise would not have access to. Um, and, you know, from the promoter's point of view, that they, I think a lot of promoters think that they're also doing a service to young, young women by, by, you know, bringing them into this world and also helping them kind of navigate it carefully. Um, some promoters really take it, really think of themselves as, as looking over the girls and keeping girls away from trouble and drugs and like predatory men. You know, on the other hand, some promoters are also, I would say, also very predatory. And yet, the girls might, from their perspective, might not might not be troubled by all of this. They they might, from their perspective, see it as as mutually, indeed, beneficial and pleasurable. Indeed, the drawing line, you know, everybody is using everybody. This was what one promoter told me, and and a, and a lot of the girls also said something to the extent to the same extent. Everybody is using everybody, and the problem is where you cross the line to abuse. And so there are some very clear guidelines, very kind of clear um, crossings that you shouldn't do, you know, like there are clear borders that you shouldn't cross. Um, but, but using some, you know, just using somebody is perfectly all right. Yeah. And the interesting piece is that uh, even some of the promoters and models referred to each other as friends. What do you think the legitimacy of this friendship might, might be? Yeah. So that's a, um, it's pretty ubiquitous that the promoters will refer to the, their girls as um, friends and, and the girls also refer to the promoters as friends. Um, it's also the same for the clients. A lot of the promoters will refer to their clients as friends. So the clients are these pretty wealthy guys who come in and they buy the uh, bottles at the table service and the promoter can earn money on the commissions if the, if the client is selling, or sorry, if the client is buying bottles. And so I would ask, promoters, you know, can you introduce me to some of your clients? And they would say, no, 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 don't use that word. They're not clients, they're friends. They're just my friends, <laughs> right? Like everybody has this <laughs> kind of friendship discourse again to, miti- to mitigate or to minimize the ways in, the ways in which um, these are very transactional and very, very uh, une- unevenly profitable kinds of relations. Um, so yeah, I think that it, it does that work of, um, I guess the sociologist Gabriel Rossman would say that it, it does this work of hiding up or obfuscating a disreputable exchange, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't sound good for, um, 
for like a, a broker to bring girls to a client right, and get paid for it. Like that's, that sounds close to sex work, right? That, um, and it doesn't quite, it doesn't sound so good either for, uh, you know, a promoter to um, have all of these like unpaid, you know, young working women at his table and then like, you know, and, and to refer to them as my employees or like, you know, my unpaid employees. <laughs> so, so yeah, friends is, is a, a kind of handy discourse here. On the other hand, you know, I don't want to minimize that, that real friendships do develop. I mean, there were some, some girls that really adored the promoters that they had spent years developing relationships with. And, um, and yeah, you know, I spent a few, I spent a few years following off and on one of the key figures in the book, a promoter named Dre. And I, I would also consider him, you know, by the end of my time in the field, he was something of a friend and he came to my baby shower and we, we still keep in touch. Um, you know, we're not, we're not super close. And maybe he came to my baby shower because he figured there'd be a couple of models there. <laughs> I don't know exactly, but, but I mean, you know, it's a, it's a kind of interesting question for sociology to think like, well, lots of us are have mutually beneficial friends and lots of us want to be friends with people who are high status or beautiful or, or rich because that gives us something, right? And so friendships are never kind of pure or devoid from interest, right? But there are degrees of transactional. Did you borrow from uh, Marcel Moss, The Gift, when you were thinking of that with the exchange of gifts and yeah. what, what makes a friendship? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, this is like straight out of the promoter's playbook. Some of the first thing that a promoter does when he meets a new young woman and he wants to, you know, mobilize her to come out with him, but, you know, he'll, he'll offer her gifts, he'll offer her lunch, he'll offer to drive her to her castings on a rainy day, he'll offer her yoga classes, like whatever it is, you know, like, or, or the trips, like come to the Hamptons, stay with my rich friends and their mansion, all expenses paid. Um, and this, of, of course, it, it produces closeness. It produces a sense of obligation. Um, you know, Marcel Most, the anthropologist, would say that this is the, this is like ubiquitous to societies, the gift exchange, because it cements, it's like the foundations of, of any social relations is reciprocity and obligation. And that's exactly what the promoters know um, and what they're doing with these gifts. And... and uh... What's interesting is there's also sort of a typology with the girls who are or are not being recruited. I think you uh, broke them down um, as the nice girl, the party girl, paid girl, and then a bar girl. Could you t talk a little bit more about the how each of them could be distinguished from the other? Right. Yeah. So, um, so it's actually so I, the kind of two most important. Um, typologies or categories of, of women in the space would be the, the party girl uh, versus the good girl. <laughs> like the most, the kind of like the clear opposites. So the, the party girl is a girl that all promoters want. She is somebody who looks like a model or is a model. She can stay out late, party hard, has fun, enjoys the scene, um, and is reliable to come out night after night. Um, so, you know, if, if a girl is going out on the regular with a promoter, it means basically she doesn't have to wake up early the next morning. Um, this is great for the club. It's great for the promoter. I mean, promoters have a real hard time getting people to consistently come out with them over and over. 
Um, and so, you know, if, if a girl's going out on the regular, it's fantastic for him to, to find her. And so they're, they're incredibly valuable for promoters. They're looking for those types of girls. Um, in contrast, the good girl is the kind of girl um, that clients uh, talk about as being um, the kind of girl that doesn't come out very often, but would be the kind of girl that you would want to have a long-term relationship with. Whereas the party girl is somebody that would be within the pool of candidates for a hookup. Um, they're seen as so unserious and frivolous and young and uneducated and not having their life together. Again, with the caveat that, you know, at the promoter's table coming out night after night, you might find the professor as well. Like, like there's a variety of types of, of women that are, at, you know, that have, you know, come to meet the promoter for whatever reason, but, you know, Clients usually will look at a, a promoter's table of, you know, very, very pretty and seemingly young uh, women who look like fashion models and assume that they're all party girls. Um, and yeah, they can hook up with those girls and they're fun to party with, but they're not, they're, they're useless or valueless when it comes to forming long-term relationships. To form a long-term relationship, a client um, or well, a, a, a rich guy like the ones that I interviewed they would be interested in finding a woman who has more substance to her, by which they would mean is educated, um, is upwardly mobile, or comes from an upper class family and is unlikely to be out at a club night after night because she does have to wake up and do something in the morning. And this is something that we see in studies uh, in demography among upper classes. They tend to um, they tend to marry uh, uh, within occupational and educational levels and prestige and income. Um, and so, you know, the, the party girl is kind of assumed to be unstable in her life, unlike the good girl. Um, so, so yeah, those are the kind of two tropes that, that anchor the way that, um, promoters and, and especially also clients, um, see women in these spaces. There's also, there's also paid girls. Um, so paid girls are, there's a number of different women that would occupy that category in a club. So, uh, women who work as sex workers, and there's obviously sex workers in nightclubs uh, is quite common. Um, and also the uh, cocktail waitresses who are known as bottle girls. Um, and also uh, a couple of clubs had what's known as table girls. And these are the girls that the club hires to stand at the bar. And then if a client requests company, they'll go and sit with the client. So it's like hostess, basically, like in, in Asian clubs, like what would be the equivalent of a hostess? Um, so yeah, there's this category of paid girls, but they're assumed to be for hire sexually, even though, you know, there's varying degrees of commodifying sex there. Uh, but, but everybody talks about the table girls and the bottle girls as, as being basically the same as sex workers. You know, the fact that they're getting paid means that they have entered that dubious trade of, uh, of beauty for money or sex for money. Uh, oh, sorry, sex for money. Unlike the models at the promoter's table, they're just exchanging, you know, their display of beauty for free. And then they have much higher status because of it. This, uh, VIP girl life isn't, uh, the longevity of it, um, isn't going to last forever. In fact, I think you mentioned once a girl gets into her late twenties and early thirties, the likelihood of her continuing to maintain the lifestyle of a VIP girl is very unlikely and uh, promoters are less likely to call on those girls to come out to the nightclubs because there's a specific look that they uh, want. What's the, and the promoter's life in uh, being a promoter 
uh, also doesn't last forever. So what do these models and promoters and substitute substitutes go on and do after the global party circuit life when it's no longer an option, when the global party circuit is no longer an option for them? Yeah. So, um, it's a really good question. It's a question that I get a lot about the fashion models from my first book as well. Like what happens when models, um, grow up and are no longer, you know, high, high valued as girls. Cause like, there's something kind of sad about these realms of bodily capital, including athletes where, you know, people who make a living with their bodies, uh, in this way, you know, inevitably that capital dries up. Um, so what's the afterlife and for the girls in the VIP club, I don't think that it's the right turn of phrase to say that when the party is no longer an option for them, because I do think that there's something mutual that that happened, like a mutual agreement um, between what the club wants and what is in a, a, a girl's life and, you know, in an array of opportunities um, that leaves a kind of mutual understanding that, that um, she'll no longer be coming out on the regular because okay. as girls grow up and become women, you know, they get steady jobs, they get boyfriends, they have kids, they can't stay out late anymore. Um, and it's certainly the case that with some promoters, it, it would be quite normal to find, to see a, um, someone in her thirties, you know, who had been, who had been a friend uh, at, uh, or had been a, a girl at the promoter's table for some time and then might return, you know, once for a night out. And, and that would be fine as long as she still, you know, had the, had the heels on and was dressed up. Um, but most, I think that there's something mutual that happens that, um, that young women also, um, it's no, it's no longer desirable for them and it no longer fits, fits their, their schedule or their world or their desires. I think it is a kind of lifestyle that is geared towards young women who um, have that freedom of their schedule and, um, and don't have as many constraints on their time or family life yet. Um, Yeah. The promoters are a different, a little bit of a different story because, you know, promoters also face this, disadvantage as they got older and were still in the game of promotions that it started it could start to look a little unseemly for like a 45 year old man to still be hanging out with like 18 year olds and chasing 18 year olds in the street you know to recruit them for um to come to his tables and there were a few promoters that I spent a lot of time with that were um in their 40s and other promoters who were in their 20s looked at those guys as being you know on the one hand this kind of legendary successes that they, you know, were in the game for so long. But on the other hand, it's like they should retire or they should move backstage, you know, behind the scenes of the club and why, you know, a man who continues to do this is starting to wear the mark of failure in uh, in his aging body as well. But the time horizon is much different for women than for men. That's something that was very evident in fashion modeling as well. Now we move on, I think, maybe to implications for the research that uh, you did on VIP girls. You also mentioned that the body capital um, outlined in this book may have um, some implications beyond the global party circuit, maybe even into sex work and in everyday life uh, with with women. Yeah, so... um... I mean, I, I think about this a lot, about the, the kind of generalizability of these mechanisms of um, men's, men's disproportionate uh, capacity to profit from 
women's bodily capital. And I see it a lot in other kinds of realms. So obviously fashion modeling is one, um, sex work is another, stripping is another. Like those are the kind of obvious ones, but I even see it among my students um, in uh, who, who as freshmen, they start partying in Greek life. Um, and the fraternity system is uh, is really geared around trying to get as as many young women into like a sweaty frat basement party <laughs> as possible, and like the young women get in for free, and then um, men have to pay, or the, or men don't get in at all, and then the, the frat brothers get these you know legendarily good parties or bad parties, you know, depending on <laughs> where you're at on this. But yeah, like the, you know, what makes the good party is that there's like so many women in it. Um, so I, I see that in, uh, in college life. I've seen it in like cheerleading is a pretty interesting one. So like um, a couple of cheerleading teams even launched successful lawsuits to challenge this deep inequity in which cheerleaders spend a huge amount of effort and time uh, promoting a, a team, but they're not able to um, make very much money on it. They're, they're paid really little or they're just paid in like tickets for games, but it's considered such high status, you know, and high visibility that you know any woman would want to join the Buffalo Bills or something, but um, it's actually like really terribly compensated. Um, and then if you kind of start to stretch your mind, you can see that women's bodily capital, like feminine bodily capital is used to sell all kinds of things and it's it's used to kind of prop up all kinds of industries where there's disproportionate profits going to men um if you just think about you know retail or um like tourism hotels you know the the kind of um, display of women um in the in the front stage positions as like concierge or um you know hostesses and um you know, on the shop, on the shop floor of, of retail settings. Um, yeah. And at the same time, a lot of these industries, they, they offer something exciting for women to, to take up that position of display, um, that it can feel seductive or enticing or, you know, at, at the least like mutually beneficial and not exploitative because it feels good. And that goes back to my earlier point that, you know, exploitation and pleasure often work together. And I think, and I'm trying to work through this theoretically, I, I think that exploitation works better when it's pleasurable. This was a, an excellent book to unpack and to be able to discuss with you today. And, and uh, I'm so excited to see where your research leads you, leads you next. Yes. Um, Thank you. Thanks so much for reading it and for your in-depth questions. So now might be the appropriate time to ask, what are you, what are you working on now? What, where is this journey going to take you to next? Do you, do you think you'll stay in the, uh, in the same realm for your, for your next topic, for your next book, for the next piece of research or where, where will you be going? Yeah. Well, you know, I have to, I have to say like, I haven't um, been able to do very much since having kids because this is maybe, you know, something specific about ethnography, but the kind of research that I've done, this participant observation, or rather observant participation, as Louis Coquant would call it, it's really uh, time time demanding. And so are my two little kids right now. So I've sort of shifted. I started working more with grad students and undergrads um, to do like group ethnographic projects. So I sent a bunch of undergrads 
out um, to take field notes on college parties across the Boston area because, you know, Boston has 30 plus colleges and universities, including like um, two of the top of two of the country's, you know, top ranked universities, which it, it, it makes a wonderful study of horizontal stratification because of the status dynamics that are at play when students from, let's say, Boston University party with students at Harvard. And so I have this uh, a bunch of data that, um, that I'm working through uh, that'll probably be a couple of papers. Um, in the wake of the pandemic, I've been working with a team of graduate students and also my colleague, Haba Gawayed, and we are um, developing a project this summer where we interview people who were freelance um, and other forms of non-standard employment workers and how, the, how they're weathering um, the shift and the cutback in hours and wages. So yeah, I'm going in different directions. I mean, I'm kind of, I work in, I work in um, kind of at the core questions around gender and labor and status. So I have a bunch of different projects on the table now. Excellent. Well, again, thank you uh, for joining um, me on New Books in Sociology. And I look forward to uh, reading your upcoming articles and uh, any books that might come out of the research that you're currently doing with graduate students and some of your uh, other research team at Boston University. Um, thank, thank you. you. Great. Thank you, Michael. Again, this is New Books in Sociology a channel on New Books Network. Thank you for your time.